Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining. Queen Elizabeth II was a servant to the United Kingdoms for 70 years, making her its longest reigning monarch, surpassing her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. While Queen Victoria oversaw the expansion of the UK's reach across the globe, Queen Elizabeth's reigns oversaw something quite different in a time of decolonization, social strife, Cold War, and technological revolutions. The queen was considered by many to be the one thread upholding the British monarchy, yet strengthening it in ways only she could have. Her passing leaves many in mourning, including myself, and sparked a long chain of protocol culminating in the accession of King Charles III. A bittersweet moment, yet questions surrounding the future of the crown's influence remain persistent around the world. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us. I am Kirsten Cullenberg, Director of Programs at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Today, we will hear from Lord Mark Sedwell, Baron Sedwell of Sherborne, moderated by the Council's President and CEO, Liz Brailsford. I want to extend a special thanks to several people, including our community partners across the Metroplex and the country, especially our friends at the Bush Institute's 43 Club, very welcome to join us today. I'd also like to thank our member of the World Affairs Council Board of Directors, Mike Anderson, who worked alongside Lord Sedwell for many years in the British government. Um, Mike was able to connect us with Lord Sedwell today for this opportunity, and we thank him for all he does for our council. Regardless of where you live in the U.S., please consider becoming a member of the World Affairs Council. There are over 90 chapters of World Affairs Councils across the nation, building a more informed citizenry in each city and engaging each other in important conversations. And now to introduce our guest speaker and our moderator today. Many of you know Liz Brailsford, who served as the president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth since February of 2021, having been previously with the World Affairs Councils of America, based in Washington, D.C. Her internationally focused career began with her experiences living and teaching in Japan and have included work with USAID and the USDA's Food for Pro Progress program. Liz serves on several boards across DFW, as well as a mentor to women seeking careers in foreign policy. She holds an MPA in Global Policy from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School and a BA in Media Arts from the University of South Carolina. Lord Mark Sedwell, who joins us today, is a longtime British diplomat, member of the House of Lords and civil servant who has served as cabinet secretary to Prime Ministers Theresa May and Boris Johnson, the head of the Home Civil Service from 2018 to 2020, and served as national security advisor for the United Kingdom. He was previously the UK's ambassador to Afghanistan, NATO civil, excuse me, NATO senior civilian representative in Afghanistan and permanent secretary at the Home Office. Educated at St. Andrews and Oxford Universities, Lord Sedwell is a fellow of the Royal Ge Geographical Society and of the Institute Directors. He has received several awards and honors for national and international public service and is currently senior independent director and deputy chair of Lloyd's of London. It's an honor to have him join us today, as there are few voices more qualified to speak with us on the impact of Queen Elizabeth's passing and the international implications yet to come. Thank you very much for being with us. I want to just quickly say that there may be some uh, connection issues today, but we're going to work through them. I know Liz will guide us as, as a professional, and I look forward to a fascinating conversation. Thank you all for joining us. Liz, I pass it to you. 
Thank you, Kirsten. And Lord Sudwell, thank you so much for joining us. I know how incredibly busy your schedule is, so we appreciate your time and thank you. I also want to start by offering our deepest sympathies and best wishes for what will come in your country and the United Kingdom. And uh, I want to echo what Kirsten said, you are the perfect person to speak with and we thank our, our board member the fabulous uh, Mike Anderson for helping facilitate this meeting today. Uh, this program is part of our real-time report. It's our newest series that we've created to give you real-time analysis on what's going on in the world with breaking news. And like I said, you are a perfect person. So thank you, Lord Sunwell, for being with us. I want to kick us off here. There's a lot to unpack. And so I want to start us off quickly. And Help us understand here in the United States, how does your former office in the UK, the Home Civil Service, work with the Queen and the monarchy? And if you can lead into um, what was it like working with the Queen? And what is she like? What was she like? Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, if the canon issues uh, uh, disrupt our conversation, I'm coming to you from uh, the, uh, the flagship of the Royal Navy, which is in New York uh, Harbor, just next to the Statue of Liberty. Uh, so we are having some connection issues. I believe he's in the United States right now and perhaps could be coming in from an office with some connection issues. Lord Sam, will you Hi. are, here you are. You are breaking up a bit. I wonder if you may go to another office or possibly even outside, we'll take you there also. Let's try that, um, I'll try outside. It's quite windy, so there may be noise out there, but let's just give that a shot. Let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. So as everyone knows, the Queen passed on Thursday, September 8th, two days after Prime Minister Liz Truss took over on Tuesday, September 6th. She became official that day. It looks like we've got him outside, so we'll see if we can make this work. Lord Sedwell, we see you perfectly. Your sound is a little choppy still. So he is on a warship. Still a little choppy. Thanks for bearing with us, everyone. He's on a, on a yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll do our best, I think, with the sound. If the sound goes, I'll switch the video off. Um, that, that sounds great. That we actually apologize for that, but it's, no, 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 it's just no. the nature of being on a warship. Absolutely. We understand. Uh, well, I don't know if we quite understand perfectly, but but we understand your situation. And now we see and hear you perfectly. So let me repeat that question and we'll go from there. And thanks again for everyone bearing with us. So uh, help us understand in the United States, because obviously we have a different government uh, and we don't have the, the monarchy. So how did your former office, the Home Civil Service, work with the Queen and the monarchy? And what was your what was your time like with the queen specifically and, and what was she like in in real life so i think um 
uh, I perhaps make two or three uh, points, uh, Liz, and thank you very much for your condolences, by the way. I think one of the most touching things for us in the, in the UK was the way that um, uh, the world um, shared um, in, in our, um, our hospital queen. And um, it was remarkable to see President Biden, uh, you know, very unusually uh, coming to her funeral. So we're very, very grateful for the support and solidarity we've been shown. His Majesty the King has said that as well. Um, the Queen in private was very much like the Queen you saw in public. Um, uh, thoughtful, um, uh, uh, always asking really um, uh, uh, pointed and intelligent questions very courteous um, uh, and uh, seeking to get the best out of people. I think she realized that all of us, you know, no matter how senior or, or um, experienced we were, were slightly nervous around her. You know, she'd been, um, uh, her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. Um, uh, she'd uh, uh, seen so much of uh, history. She'd met every US president, I think, with one exception since Harry Truman. And so she was always very gracious um, in trying to put, put people at their ease around her in order to try and get the best, uh, the best from them. The system we have in the UK, though, is, is very different, very different to, the, to the constitutional position in the US. It is a deliberate division between the head of state, the, the Queen and now His Majesty the King, and the head of government, the Prime Minister. Um, and I think what that means is that the focus of loyalty, whether it's in the armed forces, service um, or indeed the public service as a whole is to the crown that's that's the person to whom we swear our oath of allegiance um, i took a new one in the house of lords uh, only a few days after the death uh, to his majesty the king um, and uh, so there is that sense that we're working for someone who sits above politics and uh, uh, and um, represents the nation and indeed the commonwealth as a whole um, and I think one of the most interesting uh, uh, comments one of our constitutional scholars uh, wrote about the monarchy was it's not about, it, it, it's, the crucial thing is it's not about the power the monarch exercises, it's about the power the monarch denies. Um, it denies to politicians the ability to turn that natural loyalty to the head of state to personal political advantage, uh, which, which in presidential systems, not only in the United States, but elsewhere too, one seated in France and other places, because those two roles are combined, um, you, you can have kind of the imperial presidency. And that can't happen in the UK because um, uh, uh, the position of the monarch um, as the focus of national loyalty you are going in and out a little bit a little bit we hear you for large parts and then you are a little bit it might just be the wind uh, yeah it might, it might be i'm standing still so hopefully the signal is uh, the signal is good the signal is okay yeah the signal is good i will let me just see if i can move slightly out of the wind Oh, and we see that beautiful scene behind you, too. There you go. What a scene. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous day out. It is indeed. Oh, um, so let, let's, um, let's try that. Is that better? Yes, it is. Thank you. Okay. Thank I, do, I am sorry about this. It's, uh, uh, it is, it is uh, 
it is weird to be doing doing this on a mobile phone standing outside on what is supposed to be the most connected warship in history. Well, well, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. It's quite apparent that you have had a very long career in government and you are in an utter professional with how you are handling this. So I appreciate your, uh, your, and, and your, your perseverance. So thank you. So, uh, well, thank you for that. And, and most recently, you worked under both Prime Ministers, uh, Theresa May and then Boris Johnson, and you uh, stepped down during Boris Johnson's term. What were they like? And obviously, they were from different ends of the spectrum there. But tell us a little bit about what, what they were like to work for. What were their personalities like? And how did they differ? Well, they were they're very different personalities, obviously. And again, I think I think what is striking about them is that their public personas are very similar, are basically the same as their private, their private personas. So, um, uh, you know, what what you would have seen in public of the two of them, the different kinds of personalities, is exactly what we used to see um, in private as well. They're both essentially authentic in that uh, in that sense. I think what is really striking about the job of prime minister, almost like unlike any other job in government, and I think it's true of the presidency of the United States as well, is that. You can shape the way of that, the way of, of, of exercising that job to the personality in it. If you're the foreign minister, the, the secretary of state in the US, or the 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 you know you're running the department for homeland security or whatever, um, you have very clear responsibilities, clear boundaries, um, uh, and and the way you operate is essentially pretty well defined for you. But if you're if you're the head of government, you can operate uh, in in very different ways. And so I. Yeah, uh, we we adapt the government machine to the personality of the uh, of the prime minister. And so, if you just to use a you know, use a, a parallel in the United States, if you think of President Reagan, for example, you know, a very successful uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. president, um, his way of operating um, as the great communicator was to set the strategic uh, direction, um, communicate it to the American people. Um, but pick a really strong team of people around him uh, as his chief of staff and in his cabinet, whom he then, you know, he wasn't a details man. He let them then get on with it as long as he was confident they were pursuing his strategic direction. You've had other presidents, President Clinton, for example, who was much more involved in all of the detail, or President Obama, much, much more involved in, in all of the detail. And the same is true of British prime ministers, that they can, um, they can be sort of one or the other, if you like, a Reagan or a Thatcher. Um, if, if one thinks of those two you know, leaders who got on very well, but had very different styles. And Boris Johnson was probably more, um, uh, his style, you know, including when he was mayor of London, was more akin to the Reagan style, you know, a fantastic political communicator um, uh, 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 and uh, setting strategic direction. Theresa May's style, probably again, more like uh, a Clinton, uh, a Bill Clinton or a, um, uh, or a Margaret Thatcher, very uh, uh, um, focused on the detail of government. You can almost see that in, in the way that, um, with the way that the prime ministers both uh, uh, seemed in their energy and their, their, uh, the, the image that they projected, you could feel that that's how they would be. That's, that's really interesting. So just before the Queen's passing, new Prime Minister Liz Truss was in the chamber, the House of Commons chamber, and she was interrupted in her announcement of, the, of an energy price freeze. The Commons had never been interrupted like this before, and it was to hear news of the, the Queen's health. So can you speak to what the atmosphere was like in the UK uh, days before the Queen's passing? 
Yeah, it was, um, uh, of course, the last um, a duty the Queen performed, and, and she was you know, performing her duties right up until the end. That, that, was, that was really what defined her as, as a public servant, um, was uh, one of those constitutional duties that only the monarch can perform, and that is um, seeing the, um, uh, the, the conclusion of, the, of Boris Johnson's premiership and appointing Liz Truss um, as, uh, as his successor. Although um, the choice of prime minister rests in the, in, you know, the, politi the party political system, the formality is that the, the, the monarch as head of state actually appoints uh, the prime minister. And, and so that very last photograph we saw of the queen, um, smiling but looking, looking frail, was of her um, appointing Liz Truss to the premiership um, uh, from uh, her uh, summer We've got a little bit of a freeze here. We'll wait this out a moment and see if he comes back in a second. We are incredibly lucky to have this speaker with us. We know how busy his schedule was as we tried to schedule this and we are very grateful to him. He mentioned the photo uh of when the queen actually appointed and it became official for the prime minister trust to take over as prime minister and if any of you have seen the photo i'm sure most or if not everyone has the queen almost looked like she was in perfect health and and she did seem a little frail but it's it was shocking uh to me at least when those photos emerged how healthy she actually seemed so we're going to give it a moment and everyone, thank you very much for bearing with us. We've got him back here. Let's see, you are on mute, but we can see you perfectly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't. I, I, I have five G reception in New York Harbor, but it does seem to be cutting out. And anyway, we'll keep going. Um, yeah, so I think the point I was really making was that no one, in a sense, was surprised because the Queen had been in in fragile health for some while. She was ninety six um, years old, but everybody was stunned, and that was definitely the case um, the day after. I was in the House of Lords that day um, when. Uh, uh, people were uh, making speeches to pay tribute to her. Uh, all normal business was suspended, and the sense of uh, of, of shock, um, of of uh, that emotional loss, sense of loss, was palpable. So, how may Prime Minister Truss's government or governance, rather, be impacted or changed changed because of the Queen's passing? Well, she so got. So I think I think one of the things that uh, the late Queen was very careful to do was never to get drawn into the political debate. I mean, it is remarkable when you think she was one of the most prominent people in the world for 70 years and no one knew what she thought. And even those who did, who got an insight into it in private, would never uh, disclose that. We always, you know, we always maintained uh, her confidence. And that, was the, that is the strength of a constitutional monarchy that she was very, very careful not to be drawn into the political debate or allow her views to be communicated. And um, uh, uh, the new king, King Charles III, has made clear that he will follow that model as well. And so um, uh, the new government in the UK has had quite a controversial start with 
um, uh, uh, launching some quite radical uh, changes to economic policy. Uh, but no one in, in the UK, uh, that controversy is very much within the political arena. And no one in the UK is suggesting that um, uh, the, the presence of the new king um, is related to that uh, at all. He sits, as his mother did, above the political uh, contest. We are in such an unprecedented time as adults working in our careers, either in government or the private sector, or whatever it may be. It seems that because it's an unprecedented time that there is an opportunity to have behaviors uh, impacted and changed. So it's interesting that you feel that there, there won't really be much of one. Do you see any impacts, um, immediate impacts in the UK? Uh, maybe not through Prime Minister Trust, but perhaps through the lens of your fellow countrymen or, or perhaps through other uh, departments and, and offices of the government? So I think what is striking is, is and, and this has been a, this is something the Queen, I think, prepared for quite carefully, was to try to ensure that the line of succession was, was, um, was clear, that the role of the King and the Queen consort, would, the transition would be very smooth, We've had the appointment uh, immediately uh, on his accession of his son, um, Prince William, as, as Prince of Wales to succeed um, uh, King Charles, who was Prince of Wales before. And so that sense of continuity of the institution, even though um, uh, we've lost a great queen, but the sense of the continuity of the institution was something she worked very hard to preserve and did so in quite uh, important ways through her various jubilees, the Golden Jubilee, her 50 years, Diamond Jubilee, 60, and the Platinum Jubilee, 70 years, where she was consciously um, bringing uh, King Charles alongside her um, uh, to show that the institution of the monarchy was in, uh, was in good hands uh, when, uh, when she passed and uh, when it was handed off. Um, he's uh, toured the UK, he's toured all four nations of the UK, uh, one of the things that was a genuine innovation is, although the forms of um, accession are hundreds of years old, the oath that he swears um, uh, uh, goes back to um, the glorious revolution of 1688 and, and uh, it, was tele it was televised for the first time. He made an address um, only uh, 24 hours after the late Queen's uh, passing to the nation. And that had never been done before either. And so uh, uh, there, there was a, a conscious attempt by the king to um, reach out to the nation uh, to essentially introduce himself uh, 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 to us as king. We've known him for a long time, of course. He's the longest serving Prince of Wales in history, for the same reason as his mother was the longest serving queen. Um, but he was reintroducing himself to us as king. And I think that transition has gone uh, very smoothly and it's important to the institution of the monarchy that of course uh, it does. So you think he will be widely accept accepted by uh, other leaders and and um, most specifically or perhaps most importantly other countries in the Commonwealth. Uh, there's over 50 of them, there's 14 realms. Uh, you think he will be widely accepted by them also and let me let me just follow on to that question is with, do you think there will be any type of reduction of visibility in the monarch now that uh, King Char Charles is installed? 
I don't think there'll be any reduction in visibility in, in, in a sense, actually, perhaps on the contrary, um, uh, uh, for the last few years, the, 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 the Lake Queen, for example, was not making long haul trips. And so um, as Prince of Wales, King Charles would represent her at, for example, Commonwealth summits if they were the other side of the world. Uh, whereas he will, of course, uh, be able to do that uh, for himself. So, um, uh, you, the, at least you know, in in this phase, um, I think you'll see the, the king um, very much being uh, the sole representative of the monarchy, rather than, um, uh, as happened in Queen Elizabeth's later years, um, her sh essentially sharing some of that with um, with him as as her son. Um, I, I mean, in terms of the Commonwealth. Um, Several countries, including those um, which are realms, um, um, have for some time you know, considered whether or not it is appropriate for them to maintain uh, you know, a head of state um, who uh, resides outside their own country. It's been a question in Australia in the past, certainly a question in some of the Caribbean nations. And the UK and certainly um, the Queen and now King Charles have always taken the view that these are decisions for these countries. Uh, of course, we hope that they would remain within the Commonwealth, within that family of nations. Um, uh, but whether they want to retain the monarch as the head of state or whether they want to go to a different constitutional arrangement, we've always taken the view is very much a matter, uh, a matter for them because the democratic values uh, that underpin a constitutional monarchy, of course, apply everywhere else as well as in the UK. We are talking with uh, Lord Mark Senwell, former uh, uh, head of the Home Civil Service in the UK, and we are talking about the Queen's passing and the impact that it has around the world. We have a Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. Please do submit your questions and I will weave those in and out of this conversation as we go on. Uh, so uh, what are some of Commonwealth um, aside, uh, your realm countries of 14 aside, what are some of the other short-term short impacts that you may see coming with the Queen's passing in this transition that's happened? And, and, and follow that, please, with medium or long-term impacts that you may see. Well, I think the, the clear objective of the late Queen and of the new King is that that impact is absolutely minimized, that the institution of the monarchy is continuous, what happens on the death of a monarch is, um, uh, is instantaneous. It's known as you know, one breathes out, the other breathes in. And uh, uh, the traditional form of words on the death of a monarch is the queen is dead, long live the king, or the king is dead, long live the king, long live the new king. It's, a, it's an immediate uh, 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 passage. And as I said, she worked very hard to try to ensure that um, there would be a smooth transition to, to King Charles. Now, uh, he will decide um, uh, how he wants uh, to lead the institution of the monarchy. There's been speculation about whether uh, he will make some changes to the, the uh, number uh, of members of his family that are active working royals, as they're known, um, whether he'll want to streamline. There are, you know, there, you know, there's, there's been lots of questions around uh, that, but those are, you know, uh, he's already said that he will have to reduce um, his, his personal involvement um, with some of the charities and other organizations he supported when he was Prince of Wales, because as King, he now has other duties. And then there'll be questions for those institutions about who, for example, becomes their new, um, their new royal patron. So one uh, 
very big charity in the UK, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, which I'm a trustee of, and that's that's uh, th their job. They they essentially save lives at sea. They run the lifeboat service as a charity in the UK, working alongside the Coast Guard and others to save um, uh, save save lives at sea and reduce drown. Um, the Queen, the late Queen, was uh, the RNLI's patron. Uh, many regiments uh, and military institutions had the Queen as their uh, as their patron or as their commercial uh, as their colonel in chief and so the new king will need to decide um, how to distribute those which ones he wants to take on himself and uh, and how to distribute those but i but i i think she would have hoped and he will hope that the, that actually there won't be a, a significant impact on the life of the nation uh, that the institution of the monarchy uh, is a stabilizing factor um, is the focus of loyalty and that that will remain. And so I think particularly now, it, it's a remarkable inflection point to have a change of government and a you know, change of head of government and a change of head of state at the same time. I don't think that's happened um, uh, uh, certainly uh, in the last couple of hundred years. And so the sense that we've, we've, we've had a, 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 a shift of direction in the UK, um, we shouldn't really associate that with the King's accession. It's much more about the change of government and new, the new policies of the new prime minister. Yeah, uh, thank you. I, there are a couple of questions and, and I actually had a question about this too. So I'm gonna round up their questions that is along the same lines of mine. And that is that the queen appeared particularly adept at holding the Commonwealth together and holding these 14 realms together. Are there particular bonds that may be stronger or will remain strong with the king? And then are there bonds that may um, become less strong in the king's time? Difficult to say, really. I mean, I think we shouldn't underestimate, as you've implied through the question, the sense of personal loyalty to the to Queen Elizabeth herself. She had uh, devoted her life to service ever since that famous broadcast from South Africa when she was 21, um, and she was devoted to the Commonwealth. The King is too, and so he has um, uh, uh, represented the Queen at Commonwealth summits recently, and uh, it was with unanimous agreement uh, of the heads of government of the Commonwealth a few years ago that on her passing, he would become head of the Commonwealth as well, because we needed, the Commonwealth is a, essentially quite a democratic institution. Um, uh, there are very small states in it, and of course, very large uh, states like India, and all of them agreed that um, the head of the Commonwealth should become, uh, that, that, that that role should pass to King Charles on his, uh, on his accession. But of course, um, you know, families evolve, networks change, already touched on whether the constitutional position in some of the nations might uh, might change and the commonwealth like any institution needs to adapt to the modern era i think one of the areas that we've all hoped and i'm sure the king would hope the commonwealth can play an important role in given the number of very small including small island states there are in the commonwealth is in um, uh, promoting uh, their interests as we tackle the challenge of climate change uh, because they will be uh, more seriously affected if there are uh, if sea levels rise uh, and if there is more volatility in the uh, in the world climate um, than uh, than, than uh, European nations or uh, or North America. And the Commonwealth is an institution which gives some of those small nations a voice. And I'm sure the King he's been um, very um, focused on environmental issues throughout his life and I'm sure he would want the Commonwealth to, for example, to um, uh, play an active role in representing the interests of, of those members. 
Do you see any of the Commonwealth countries uh, at risk of breaking away now in the near term? Well, uh, what you have over the years and then we enter and by the way, that risk that that um, that wind is coming up again. Just uh, so you know, that yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, the actually, it is actually getting stronger here. So, so. I that's try. good where you are. That's good where I you are. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, trying to keep the microphone out of it. Um, yeah, the breeze is definitely getting stronger out here. Um, if I drop the phone, it's because my hand my hand is frozen. Um, the. Uh, uh, we had we have had countries that have left the Commonwealth sometimes temporarily. South Africa um, was outside the Commonwealth for the whole of the apartheid era. Pakistan has been out and, and re-entered Zimbabwe, etc. Um, but actually, the Commonwealth has actually expanded over the past uh, few years, and uh, including some nations have joined that were never part of the British Empire. Uh, the Commonwealth you know, essentially was the uh, organisation that helped manage that transition as we went through the decolonization in the uh, uh, in the decades after uh, World War II and maintained the um, uh, the cultural links between Commonwealth nations uh, after the uh, once the political uh, links were uh, uh, essentially changed with the with uh, with independence for many Commonwealth countries but countries that were never you know, part of that institution um, have actually joined the Commonwealth because they value the the cultural links, the people-to-people -people links. Uh, they like participating in the Commonwealth Games, which is you know, uh, the biggest sporting um, uh, uh, um, uh, event other than the other than the Olympics. Um, and uh, and so, actually, I think the Commonwealth is in pretty good shape. So let me expand on that question and then bring in Brexit that happened, um, and then we all know about Brexit. And uh, so those are two very large geopolitical uh, transitions. And so if there was to be a Commonwealth country that, that broke away, or uh, and now that Brexit has happened, what are some of the uh, economic impacts that may impact how the UK contributes to the global order or the world at large? Well, I think the Commonwealth is not an economic institution. There has been talk sometimes whether we should try and create a, a Commonwealth free trade uh, agreement, but um, uh, uh, the Commonwealth uh, actually is, is much more as a network and, and cultural organization nowadays um, uh, that, that tries to deal with some of those broader challenges rather than the sort of hard, you know, the hard you know, governance issues of security and, and economics. So I don't think the Commonwealth is, is likely uh, in the near future to really affect the, the global economic uh, order. Of course, as you say, um, uh, we've been through Brexit and that's um, that's obviously uh, a very significant uh, uh, change in our economic relations with our neighbours here in the European continent. Uh, we have a free trade agreement with the EU, which obviously is um, uh, uh, different to the, the, the previous uh, system when we were part of the European single market. And actually, we're, we're seeking to try and reduce some of the frictions that have arisen um, during that uh, transition. And um, the new prime minister, Liz Truss, was our trade secretary uh, for several years and uh, is very focused on trying to secure more free trade agreements with countries elsewhere in the world, which we couldn't do as part of the EU because those had to be negotiated by the EU. So we are seeking to become a member of the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Free Trade Area, um, even though obviously uh, as you're 
uh, colleagues will know we're not a Pacific uh, nation uh, geographically, but we do an awful lot of trade with the Pacific and, and have many interests there, including through the Commonwealth. Uh, we were negotiate, have been negotiating a free trade agreement with the United States. Uh, we're negotiating one with India. Uh, and so um, what we're seeking to do um, uh, now that Brexit has been implemented is actually uh, have a wider range of free trade agreements with other countries in the world. We have one uh, agreed with Australia, uh, for example, a very important Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth partner. So it's a big change for us, um, a big change in orientation, uh, but one which um, uh, you, we're, we're clearly seeking to uh, uh, get, uh, exploit the benefits uh, uh, of, having that, uh, of having that freedom to, uh, to, to follow our own path. Here's a question from the audience, uh, Ms. Dunn. Do you think King Charles will remain in office until death or consider stepping down to give a younger leader the opportunity to serve? Um, I think, uh, I, I mean, of course, I don't know. This, is, this, this, this uh, would be very much in the king's own mind. And you know, there have been examples elsewhere of constitutional monarchies in Japan, uh, in Spain, uh, uh, elsewhere, where um, that model uh, uh, has been followed and, and um, the monarch has retired and, uh, uh, and it's been passed on. Um, uh, the queen uh, herself, I think, set the example that she was determined to serve the nation for the whole of her life. And the king has taken the same oath. And so my expectation is that he sees it in the same way. But it would be wrong for me to speculate. Here is another uh, question from our audience. As former National Security Advisor, do you feel the UK's adver adversaries view this as a vulnerable, vulnerable time for your, for your government? And what concerns do you have? Well, I think it would be a mistake for our adversaries to see it that way because um, uh, I think this is one of the benefits of a constitutional monarchy. You don't get that sense of disruption, the, 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 the deliberate passing of the baton, the, the profile that the late queen gave to the king when he was uh, her, uh, her heir apparent as, as Prince of Wales means that the, the transition is deliberately smooth and you don't get that sense of a, a, a disruption you get, for example, when a US administration uh, changes, um, you know, particularly when that change is disputed as it was, uh, uh, as it was last time. Uh, and even a change of government, because you have the institution of the monarchy sitting above it, even a change of government, and you know, the, the new government is pursuing some quite um, sharply different economic policies to, its pre to, to, to their predecessors, um, but even a change of government, um, therefore, is probably feels less dramatic to us than sometimes it might do in a presidential system. And um, uh, the new government's uh, commitment, for example, to Ukraine, um, uh, to NATO, uh, to our relationship with the United States. The reason I'm on this carrier is I'm chairing a thing called the Atlantic Future Forum, which is a US-UK uh, security conference. And we've just had Eric Schmidt um, here this morning and many members of the US administration. Um, the new government's commitment to those alliances um, and to um, uh, standing fast against our adversaries, notably, of course, Russia's uh, aggression in Ukraine, is as strong as its uh, uh, as their predecessors. And so I think any, any of our adversaries would be making a mistake if they think this is a moment uh, to exploit. Actually, it shows the strength of our institutions, uh, I think, uh, the smoothness of this, of this transition. Well, I'm glad you brought up Russia and Ukraine because I had a question about that. And 
you alluded to this just a, a few moments ago, but if you can expand on it, do you feel uh, due to Brexit, uh, do you feel that that the UK has felt um, a little left out of coordination or involvement in the UK, uh, Ukraine-Russia war or even unprotected in some way uh, due to that or, or, or does it feel liberated? Do you all? I think actually in a sense, in, in a sense, it's definitely we don't feel unprotected. Uh, uh, of course, we're one of the two uh, uh, nuclear weapon states in Western Europe, uh, the UK and France, uh, and we provide um, uh, part of NATO's deterrent against uh, the Russian uh, 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 Russian nuclear weapons alongside uh, the United States and, and the US nuclear umbrella. Uh, and actually, we've been uh, central to uh, the uh, allied effort in Ukraine, the previous prime minister and this one. Um, played a very powerful leadership role, I think, and, and people have paid tribute to that, um, including from the US administration, um, to the role that we've we've played in Ukraine. So I don't think we felt left out at all. If anything, um, we've been leaning in very hard. And let's not forget, Brexit was leaving the EU, but we remain the second uh, biggest military power in, in NATO and Europe's biggest uh, military power in, uh, uh, in, in NATO and have been essential to that effort. Let's change gears just a little bit and uh, ask a little bit more on the cultural front. How does an entire culture, and this is a guess from our audience, how does an entire culture adjust to the king's reign after 70 years of the queen's rule? What is the cultural impact there? Well, I think the answer to that is we, we won't know probably for several years uh, because you know, historians will have to judge um, uh, how, significant, how significant this was. Um, you know, this, this transition was her reign was, for the reasons you said out at the beginning, when, uh, was, she, she oversaw a very important transition in Britain's place in the world from uh, our position in the immediate uh, post-World War II years to um, this first quarter of the 21st century. Um, and uh, I think what will really determine cultural impact is what happens over the next um, 20, 25 years. Um, uh, uh, as well. Um, as I said, I think for the monarch himself, for the institution, for the king himself, for the institution of the monarchy, um, that sense of continuity, of the passing of the torch to a new generation, very smoothly, um, uh, was something that the queen, the late queen herself, worked very hard to uh, ensure. I'm sure the king would do the same. We've seen in his early statements, as I said earlier, in the um, uh, uh, in, in uh, appointing uh, Prince William as uh, immediately as Prince of Wales, taking over uh, the role that King Charles uh, performed before, that that sense that you know, there is another, you know, there is someone else who will also take up the torch, um, let's hope in, in, in many years at the time. And his son, uh, George, nine years old, Prince George of Wales, nine years old, again, will take up the torch after that. And there some iconic images on the balconies or in Buckingham Palace of the four generations of the late Queen, the King, uh, Prince William and, and, and Prince George, uh, uh, trying to demonstrate that this institution um, sits uh, in, uh, at the core of the British nation and will provide that sense of, of, uh, of continuity and stability. 
Another question is, can you share how intricate, intricate the protocol was in place as the government prepared for the Queen's passing? From Parliament to the Royal Funeral Services to the BBC, how involved were you in uh, preparing for that eventuality? When uh, when I was doing my last job in government, when I was cabinet secretary, um, we we had a, um, a, a a contingency plan. I mean, obviously, one knows that at some point um, this this was going to this was going to happen. Uh, we're all mortal. Uh, called London Bridge, and uh, it it was a, a, a very thorough plan of all of the elements that would would have to be put in place um, uh, on the death of Her Majesty and for the accession of uh, King Charles. Uh, we had other subsidiary plans, so there was one called Fourth Bridge, uh, which we put in place when the Duke of Edinburgh uh, died, and there are other contingency plans. Um, and so everything was very carefully prepared beforehand, including um, how to handle um, uh, the situation if, as, as, as she did, the Queen passed uh, when she was in Scotland at Balmoral, um, or if it had happened when she was overseas in Scotland. So we went through those plans quite carefully over many years and refined them and agreed them, of course, with the most important person. But, uh, and they have so, thank you very much for their, for their stamp. Uh, but there were then some adjustments um, uh, to, to meet um, the, the, the demands of the time. I think one thing we never knew was how many people would want to uh, turn out and, and pay their respects. So we had a range of numbers in mind and were preparing all the logistic things one needs to do, transport and, uh, and, and support for people who wanted to uh, uh, pay their respects, go to the buying estate, uh, attend the state funeral, be along the route and all the rest of it. Uh, and the numbers, I think, even exceeded the highest numbers that we um, had prepared for us. So there were some adjustments made at the last minute to allow more people to uh, see um, the late Queen's coffin uh, and the hearse as it went past and pay their respects and so on. But the fundamental plans have been ones that she had approved and had been in place for many years. You know, I was speaking to some British friends uh, after the Queen passed, and I think some of them were uh, a little surprised at how emotional they were and how impacted they felt they were in the days that followed. I'll tell you from my personal point of view, I always admired the queen for no matter what her age was or how busy her schedule was, she always handled her office with the utmost decorum and handled, uh, carried out her duties till the very, the very end. And uh, that is an inspiration to me as a, a woman leader. And uh, I know that's been inspir inspiring for many around the world as well. Were you surprised with how you felt um, I think, I think there were moments where I yeah, find even now it's quite difficult. Yeah, that surprised me that you know, still weeks later I find myself quite moved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well. I want to um, end with this question, and it is how will the Queen be remembered, and how can we honor her legacy in the future? Um, I think she will be remembered. I once said this of her, actually, um, at, a, at an event she attended, um, and she gave me a big smile, so I, I'm assuming that she liked it. Um, and the cheers needed to the roof. 
beautiful one. I just called her the nation's greatest public servant. And she, in as her personal jubilee, wrote a letter. We have a freeze. We'll give it a moment and see if he comes back. I know that the world will be honoring her legacy for a long time to come. And we'll see what Lord Sedwell has to say about this if he comes back. And if not, we will bid you farewell. Thank you for bearing with us. We'll give it another moment, but thank you for bearing with us through this difficult uh, connectivity issue today. You would think on a warship that we would be more connected than ever. And often we are in our world and for better or worse, and our in our schedules. So we have him off camera now. We'll give it another minute. He's in New York in the harbor there. And here we are. We have him back on camera. And on mute once more. You're on mute and we'll hear your last segment here. There we go. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, just just at the crucial question. So how will she be? I think she will be remembered that way. And she wrote this letter on her passing jubilee to the nation and formally for all her subjects. You know, we're citizens, but we're subjects of the monarch. And she signed it, your servant, Elizabeth. Mm. I think that's how she That is remarkable. It's remarkable. Well, Lord said, well, thank you. Like I said, when we started this and you were having connectivity issues, it is quite obvious you've been in the government for many years. You are a total professional. Thank you for joining us truly uh, in your busy schedule and good luck with your conference there and in New York. We wish you the very, very best in your country. And like I said in the beginning, offer our deepest condolences for uh, this trans transition. But thank you again for your time. And we wish you well. All thank you. And I'll, so I'll leave you therefore with the image oh. I'm now looking at in New York Harbor. Uh, uh, and what a pleasure it's been to talk to you. And, uh, and thank you for um, thank you for your time and thank the audience for their questions. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We wish you farewell. Thank you. Thank you, thank you everyone. Thank you.